Well, hello, everyone. I was actually looking in the mirror right before I came on, uh, came on camera, and I realized I'm at most one week away from trying my first at-home haircut. And I'm not sure if you have any suggestions. You can put some in right now. I will take suggestions. I was looking online this week, and I saw something new, something I've never seen before. It was called a bullet. It is a bowl cut in the front and a mullet in the back. Uh, so... Who knows? I don't think I'm going to go with that, but stranger things have happened. I also didn't think I'd be a televangelist as of a month ago, and now look at me go. So, bullet, here we come. Also, if you're watching and either on Facebook, it would be great now if you could like and share uh, what we're doing. That might sound like a weird thing to ask, but if you do that, more people have the potential to tune in. Uh, so, if you could do that, that would, be, that would be great. This actually all feels really backwards. I was remembering maybe two months ago, we did a whole series on slowing down, and there was one, less, one message in it where I kind of called everybody out saying, hey, uh, during the service, we can tell if you're on Facebook, so stop looking at your phone and stop being on Facebook engaged. Now I'm giving you the exact opposite advice. I'm saying get on Facebook, so I know it can be very, I'll be very confusing, strange times indeed. I am a huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. I've read them several times. If you're looking for a book series to read during this time, I would recommend, recommend picking them up. Um, every time I read through it, there's always different interactions with the characters that jump out at me. And uh, there's, one, there's one that's in Prince Caspian, and it is between uh, Aslan, who's the, the Christ figure in it, and Lucy. And so Lucy has not seen Aslan in a while, and this is what she says when she encounters him. She goes, Aslan, you're getting bigger. And that is because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. Not because you are. And this, this line right here always gets me. He says, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, C.S. Lewis, he was the master at taking deep theological truths and distilling them into his, into his fiction work. But I want to Put this, put this one line up and just, and just look at it. He says, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And he wasn't just making a point in this about some make-believe lion, C.S. Lewis wasn't. He was, he was also talking about Jesus. Now, if you, if you find yourself maybe, maybe bored with Jesus or you think you have him all figured out, he's, it's something, you know, he hasn't excited you in a while in a new way or some new thing you've learned about him, I just want to say that that's not a sign of maturity. What that is, is it's a sign you've stopped growing. Because as you grow, it's impossible not to find Jesus bigger. And I, and I hope we can help you with that a little bit this morning. You know, we took a two-week break for Easter to do a Palm Sunday and an Easter message, but now we're, we're back in Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you have your Bibles with you, or you want to open up your your phone, you look at Colossians 1. We're going to be in 15 through, 15 through 20. But I want, you to, I want you to pay attention specifically this morning to what the, these verses are saying about Jesus. Because I don't care how long you've been a Christian or if, you, if you're not a Christian, this is the first time you've, you've kind of tuned in. What I want to say is it's going to be impossible for you to go through, this, the, through these verses without finding Jesus bigger. Uh, this is one of the high points of, of Christology and all, all the New Testament. Now, this section that we're in, it's, it's a beautiful poem that's answering the question, who is Jesus? Because how, how you answer this question is so important. So let me, let me read it through, 
and I want to show you what Paul's, you know, what Paul says, so you can begin to answer this question of who is Jesus with some really amazing things. And hopefully by the end of this, Jesus is going to be a little bit bigger to you. This is starting in verse 15. Paul says this, speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what what are we reading right here? This This is a poem, but there's actually been a decent amount of debate in scholarship on whether this is a pre-existing hymn that the Apostle Paul took that had been circulating around in the church for a while that he kind of repurposed for this letter, or is this original material from the Apostle Paul? I would guess that this is something that's been hotly debated, you know, before. This, is, this has come up. Is this original or not? <laughs> just, just kidding. I, so it's maybe even this debate got so crazy and made your whole what color is the dress debate that we had from a few years ago seem tame. Um, this, was, this was going around, and don't worry, it's gold, by the way. That's, that, that is the correct answer. All you people that see it blue are just wrong. Sorry, what can I say? <laughs> so here's going to be my bold stance on this passage, on what Paul is doing here. I don't think that this is Paul taking pre-existing material, a hymn that had been going around and repurposing it, What I think and what I've been convinced of is that the inspiration for these verses is actually Genesis 1-1. And I want to show you how Paul, sort of in the words of the Bible Project, is a literary ninja and what he does with Genesis 1-1 and how he weaves it through because it's it's incredible. So Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the, the first word, in the Bible, in Hebrew, which is, we kind of translate in three words in the beginning, is, is Bereshit. And uh, <laughs> look, look what he does. Look what he, look what he does with this. So the preposition for, for the beginning of the word, the, the bay that comes in, is, can be, um, it can mean in, by, and for. It has, it has three different possibilities. And so in these verses, we see Paul, sa- Paul says that all things were created, all of creation was created in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. This is, but then he goes on, and, and we'll show you the, an- another slide that shows the rest of the word, the, re- the reshit. This, this can mean beginning, sum total, head, and first fruits. And so what we also see Paul doing in these five verses is talking about how Christ is before all things, showing him to be the beginning, showing, him, showing how it says, in him all things hold together, which is sum total, that he is the head of the body, which is, you know, head, and that he is the firstborn or the firstfruits of the dead. So uh, why, why did I show you this? Why is this, why is this even important? Uh, so this is what Paul does here. 
Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, these, and in these five verses in Colossians, Paul is talking about how Jesus is the creator of all things and how he is the head over the, the universe. But instead of just saying that, this is what he does. He, he weaves in every possible definition and understanding of the first word of the Bible, shows how that is fully encapsulated in Christ. Like, I think that's awesome. And, you know, instead of just saying, instead of just saying it, he, again, he's a literary ninja that, that weaves it in. Um, so why, why do I tell you this? Why, why should you even care about this? Uh, two reasons, primarily. One is, this connection would not have been lost on the first, on the first readers. You know, they would have picked up on this. A lot of this gets lost in our translation. It would not have for them. So that just helps you understand it, how they would have understood it. But here's the second reason. I think it's helpful to see how good of a writer Paul was and some of the other writers of the New Testament. Because they often write at a depth where you just need to slow down to understand. Uh, one thing I've learned how to do, and I think a lot, you, a lot of people can get a, more out of the Bible, is if you learn to read the Bible both fast and slow. So this is, this is a letter, letter of, you know, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And it would be very natural if you received a letter to just pick it up and read it all the way through. You'd probably do that a few times. You would never approach it the first time, kind of how we are in preaching. Like, all right, this week we are going to read the introduction, two lines. And we're just going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But don't worry, next week we're going to talk about the next couple of verses. And in a month we might get to the fourth paragraph. Like you would never do that if you actually got a letter. You'd, again, read it all the way through. You'd understand it. And then you'd go back and look at it uh, slowly. And, you know, oh, I wonder what this word means. I wonder what they, what, what they, meant, what they meant by that. Um, you need to learn to read the Bible both fast and slow. As we're coming to this section, we are going to read it slow. Because there, there is a lot in here. I remember, I remember when I was a kid. Maybe you, if you grew up in this area, this, this happened to you. I had to go on these dreaded things called foliage rides. Now, this is when, you know, your parents would throw you and your brothers and sisters in a car and drive around for like a couple of hours while they would stare at leaves. And when you are under 10, that is brutal. It is so boring. But now, as a parent, I totally get it. You get to lock your small children in their seats. They cannot move. And you just get to go and just get to enjoy. And if you can tune out the whining, it is a reasonably good experience. Uh, but the best way to do a fall foliage trip, you don't drive 75 miles an hour down the highway and just kind of see it at a glance. You take the back roads, you slow down because beauty deserves to be admired. And that's what we are going to do with these five verses because this is beautiful literature tells us beautiful truths about Jesus, so we are not going to rush through it by any means. Uh, I, I guess I, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to speed through it, because what you can learn here uh, is it will help you appreciate Jesus more. And, and remember, Paul's writing this letter. He's writing this letter because the Colossian church was facing a threat of false teaching. So what Paul does to help def give them a defense against false teaching is really this. He wants them to become more acquainted with the depths of who Jesus really is. Move them past a surface 
you know, introductory level of Jesus to, you know, you thought he was just this. Let me tell you more and more and more. So once they understand who Jesus truly is, that gives them a greater appreciation for the gospel, the amazing truths of what God has done. And then Paul explores just even the scope of redemption that Jesus brought about. This isn't just about you and Jesus' individual salvation. What Paul writes about here is that all of creation, all of the universe is being reconciled because of what Jesus has done. And Paul thinks that once they kind of get their hands on that, this false teaching just is going to lose its appeal in the face of the beauty of of who Jesus is. So Paul wants to add some depth to this. Jesus is, and the first thing he highlights is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So why, here, here's why this is a really kind of important thing and we should, we should care about it. So one of the things that made Judaism and Christianity unique in all of religions was that they did not allow images or icons. Those were banned. We weren't, the Jews weren't allowed to make images of what they thought God looked like. All of the other surrounding uh, religions had this, but yet for Judaism and Christianity, this is this was uh, banned in a sense. And, and here is why. Listen to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. This is the first kind of time where this image of God pops up in the Bible. And it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So image in the Bible, in, in Hebrew, it's kind of the same word used for idol or icon. So this is why the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, this is what he said. He said, there is one way in which God is image in the world, and only one, and it is humanness. And so the reason why Judaism and why God did said you can't make any idols is because humans, humanity, was supposed to be the image or the icon of God. We were supposed to reflect God's character to the world. We were supposed to be, to rule as his representatives. Um, But our sin messed that all up. So even though we still are created in the image of God, that image is marred, it's distorted, and it needs to be restored. And so, enter Jesus. Jesus is the image, the perfect image of the invisible God. And this has two important sides to it for us. Uh, there, was, there was once a young boy who was drawing, uh, he, he, was, he was drawing a picture, and his mom asked him, what, what are you drawing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the mom goes, you can't, you can't draw a picture of God. No one knows what he looks like. And the boy kind of looks over and goes, well, they will when I'm done. <laughs> and uh, it's a great question. What, what is God like? What, what, is, what, what does he look like? There are, plen- and there are plenty of opinions tied to that. But did you know that there is one place in the Old Testament one main place in the Bible where God, in his own words, says, this is who I am. And it's Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And here is the kind of the background, the context for Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Moses is up on the mountain with God, and he has a bold request. He says, I want to see your face. I want to see what you're like. And God says, essentially, you don't know what you're asking. You can't see that. The only thing I can do for you is I can walk past you, hide you in the cleft of the rock, shield you with my hand, let you see the place where I just was, 
and then proclaim my name to you. And when he proclaimed his name, what he was saying is, this is who I am. So let me read 34, 6 through 7. He says, I am. The Lord passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, will, but who will by no means clear the guilty? And then it kind of continues and goes on. Um, so this is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. It's, it's, it's everywhere. But it's a bit ab- abstract. You know, what, is it, what does it really mean that God is compassionate and gracious? What does it look like for him to abound in love and faithfulness? Why can't he clear the guilty? So in Jesus, we see what all this looks like. Jesus brings clarity to our sort of hazy, abstract notions of what an immortal, invisible God is like. I honestly think that's why Jesus can be pretty offensive to some people. God is safe, in a sense, when you keep him distant, far off, and abstract. If you want to get someone, you know, comfortable, you can talk about God. You want to make someone uncomfortable, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. There's, there's something about that specificity that, gets, that people get a little bit nervous about. Um, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus not only shows us what God is like, what, the God, of the, what God is like in the flesh, which we can touch and see and observe, but he also shows us what we should be like. You want to know what, what God's vision for humanity was? What we were supposed to be? Look to Jesus. How does God expect us to live? Well, look to Jesus. How does God want us to love each other? Look to Jesus. How does God, who does God want to transform you to be more like? Look to Jesus. And what do you do when you mess up, fail, and realize you can never live up to that? You look to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so that's what really kind of makes this all so much more amazing for me. As we, as we go through these five verses, and we're going to see how yeah, he's the image of the invisible God, how he is the firstborn of all creation, how it makes these incredible claims that the whole universe was created for him, by him, in him, through him, that he is preeminent above all things. You know, you're talking about Jesus in ways you never even thought of. It makes it all the more amazing that he also humbled himself, that he experienced poverty and rejection, that he suffered humiliation on a cross. You know, the, the, the more we get into this, and the more your minds are kind of open to how big Jesus is, it should almost shock you with how small he allowed himself to become. The king of the universe who spoke it into existence, one of his final acts was taking on the form of the lowest servant and washing his disciples' feet. I mean, that is amazing. But that is what God is like. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, there, there are some messages where the, where the application part is really easy and concrete, and is here's what you do with this. You know, in light of what you learned, just do this. So what should our response be? 
to encountering this Jesus. So when we fill in the blank that Jesus is and, it, and we find out that he is the you know, image of the invisible God, creator, preeminent, that he's worthy of worship, that he, is, that he is Lord, what should our response be? I think simply worship. Like the application of this is just worship because that is what you were created to do. And this is really why theology gets super practical because you don't make someone like this just your advisor. You don't make someone like this just the, you know, just the person you go to and hope they agree with you on, on, on everything. You know, he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the creator of the universe. You don't get to pick and choose what parts of him you want to follow or what parts of him that you like. Like that is one of the things you get confronted with when you encounter the real Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. But guess what? Because of the gospel, he is all those great, big, almost overwhelming things. But because of the gospel, he's also Savior, Redeemer, and friend. This is, this is incredible stuff. Um, so I, I kind of want to end this morning uh, by speaking to just the Christians, especially long-term Christians. And I want to ask you a question. Do you find yourself over the years becoming more enamored with Jesus or less? Are you finding him bigger in your life or smaller? Here's what I want to say. Don't settle for a tiny Jesus. First off, that tiny Jesus doesn't, doesn't exist. Uh, but when you continue to encounter the real Jesus, you will be moved to worship. You will be moved to love others the way he loved. Uh, our, our whole mission as a church is to be people who are practicing the way of Jesus together. And it's this understanding that the more you grow in that, the more amazing you're going to find Jesus to be, and you'll be moved to worship. Can you believe that the creator and sustainer of the entire universe the one who is the perfect fulfillment of the first word of the Bible wants you to know him and experience him. Just think about that this week. Think about that truth that you were made to worship. And there's only one being that is worthy of our ultimate worship and devotion, and that is Jesus. We get to know him. We get to serve him. He's our savior, our redeemer, and our friend. That is some good news for us today.